everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes here for a Friday edition of the Revelation Questions installment of the podcast. So if I've got this right, we are on Revelation Questions number nine, which means we're getting very close to the end of this series. We are. In fact, uh, we're going to slow down a little bit, though. We do have a few weeks left, but in this lesson, we did chapters 17 through 18, which I think are, are really important. But then in our next lesson, we will do chapter 19 and finish the tribulation with Armageddon. And then I think we'll probably spend a couple of lessons on chapter 20, because as you know, you have the millennium, you have the great white throne judgment, and then, of course, chapters 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. So really exciting things coming ahead. Now, give us a quick recap of the highlights of this week's lesson. Yes, it's important to think where we are. So we have had, of course, seven seals opened, and we've had seven trumpets blown. And in our last lesson, we had six of the seven bowls of wrath or bowls of judgment poured out on the earth, God judging the earth. And after the sixth one in chapter 16, and before the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19, there's a little interlude in chapter 17 and 18. And, and it's sort of like you change topics for just a minute or you pause. And as chapter 17 opens, you see this really interesting image of the great uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, riding on the beast, which is effectively the Antichrist. So riding on the Antichrist. And then it goes on to talk about how she has enticed the kings of the earth into sexual immorality and the idea of that being infidelity to God. And so chapter 17 and 18 really focus on Babylon, the great, the great harlot who's in league with the Antichrist. So it's a self-contained little uh, section before we finish with the bowls of wrath. So we focused in on who is uh, Babylon, the mother of of harlots, and what is her relationship with the Antichrist in chapter 17 through 18. So that was the gist of our conversation in this lesson. Well, it must have been a good lesson because we only got two questions. So you must have really headed off some of the questions that people had in their minds. We got quite a few good questions during class. These two, I think we saved because they may require a little more context to build up. You know, they, they're a little farther ranging. They're good questions, but they, they go a little bit deeper and have maybe a little bit harder answers to them. So, yes, we only have two, but they're two pretty good questions. Well, the first one is about the tribulation generally, but certainly this latest part where the tribulation gets really intense. This person asks, if in desperation during the tribulation, we have to feed our families and we succumb and get the mark of the beast, will we lose our salvation? This is uh, it's a great question uh, in the sense that as we've seen uh, the various trials during the tribulation as God is judging the world and the Antichrist is persecuting Christians economically and physically, and Christians are suffering in a different way, but they're suffering a great deal. There is that temptation to say, does God expect us 
to stay faithful or do we need to do whatever it takes to get the necessities of life? And I guess my thought here is I appreciate this question and I appreciate the sincerity behind this question. I will say the scripture is pretty clear on this, however, and I want to paint a little context before I give you my short answer. And that is Christians in this book are suffering and being killed. Uh, Christians in the first two centuries after Christ were suffering and being killed by the tens of thousands. And they're Christians suffering and being killed and suffering economic persecution and hardship in our world today. So I simply want to acknowledge the reality that we may very well suffer. So given that, uh, the scripture is very clear about God's expectation for our faithfulness. What you see in the book of Revelation is people will either have the mark of the beast or they will be marked by God with the Holy Spirit and they'll be faithful to him. A couple of other verses that came to my mind, Cole, when I thought of this is in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase this, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before the angels uh, of the Lord. In other words, the expectation is there to not deny Christ, to hold to Christ, even persevering to the point of death. Also, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus uh, says this, and some might say it's hyperbole, but I don't think so. He says, if anyone who loves father or mother more than me or loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the idea is not that, that Jesus wants you to not love your son or daughter or your father or mother, but the idea is that if we're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that requires a devotion and a trust that goes beyond physical hardship. So summarizing it, you know, I would say that while this is a, a distressing question, the expectations in Scripture are very clear. Mm -hmm. What would you add to that? Well, it's a very difficult question because it is facing the inevitability of suffering. And I think what this person is referring to is not just the difficulties that will come in the tribulation, but the whole you cannot buy and sell things unless you get the mark right. of the beast. The, the, the circumstances that surround that, the mark of the beast, are pretty clear. The beast is demanding a, a level of allegiance through coercive methods. And I, I really think Christians in general should start to get used to this concept of there's there's certainly a way throughout history of governments and kingdoms and powers to say, sure, we'll we'll provide for you. We'll we'll allow you to do this, but it comes with strings attached. And there's definitely going to be moments where Christians, I think Christian universities are already struggling with this right now. There's going to right. be uh, moments where you have to refuse what would normally be a really good and and uh, some uh, a really good thing and something that you actually need because of the strings that are attached to it, and th that's really the case that of what's going on with the beast here, and, and and so when you zoom out, that really is the point of the book of Revelation. I mean, it the the message right. of Revelation Perfect. is a message of encouragement to Christians who are either currently or about to be suffering. And that's why you see right. the refrain throughout the whole book of Revelation, to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, mm -hmm. the one who endures to the end will be saved, is, is a great right. summary verse for the message of Revelation. And so this question really nails it. There will be desperate times. There will be 
uh, a trade-off between is God going to provide for us or is the beast going to provide for us effectively? Uh, are we going to do things God's right. way or the world's way? And the whole message of Revelation is prepare to do things God's way even when it gets difficult. Now, on a on right. a deeper level, I, I think there's an interesting part of this. If you look historically in the church, there have been many times when there's extreme pressure on Christians to renounce their faith under threat of death, usually. And some Christians do that, and then they are spared, and then afterwards they want to come back to church. And the, the several times throughout history, this happened in the second and third centuries. This happened during exactly. the Reformation. This has happened mm -hmm. in the 20th century in uh, other places besides America in the world, where then the church has a really difficult decision to make. What do you do with people who recanted during trials? And then when the trials went away, wanted to come back into the faith. Do you let them back in? Can they still be church members? Are those people truly Christians? This is a this is mm -hmm. something the church has dealt with, and people have come down in different spots on this in the history of the church. But right. but it's I think it's worth bringing into this conversation because I think inevitably that will be the case. However, you see the tribulation and the mark of the beast playing out cyclically, one big paradigmatic moment, one big historical moment. This will certainly occur mm -hmm. uh, where people renounce, but then maybe want to go back and be part of the church or part of the fold again. What what do you think about the options at that point? You're right. The church, and there's some writings from the first couple of centuries in the church about how to deal with this. And it's a very divisive issue in the early church. I mean, imagine this. You have someone sitting in the pew whose uh, wife, for example, was denounced as a Christian, said, yes, I am, and was killed. And now here you have someone raising their children without a mom. And next to them in the pew is someone who renounced Christ and is alive and comes back. And it caused inevitable difficulties. I think the key uh, to dealing with that is to look beyond that. And the idea is that whether or not we have trials in this life, they fade in comparison to eternity. That's something that we ought to think about when we're asked before we renounce Christ. And it's something that those who were faithful should think that, well, it looks like these other people that renounced it or these other people that took the mark of the beast have a better life right now than I do. And I think the key there is not to be enticed by that and think, yes, but I'm making decisions for eternity not for the short term. But mm -hmm. on a practical level, that's always been difficult for the church mm -hmm. as a community. The second question is looking at a specific verse. In chapter 17, verse 8, they mention the book of life. And I'll read this verse. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The, the chapter goes on, and you're actually going to see the book of life again at the end of the book of Revelation, where the books are opened and those whose books are those whose names are written in the book of life are going to go on to everlasting life, and those whose names are not are going to go on to everlasting torment with the beast. And the question here is. How can you know if your name is written in the book of life, especially if the names were written there since before the foundation of the world? Right. 
This is a great overall question, but I, I can see where it springs from uh, this chapter 17. I, now, I'm speaking just out of the memory, so pardon me if I get this wrong, but I believe that Book of Life is mentioned seven times in the Book of Revelation, and I think it's only mentioned one other time in the Bible. So it's not a, uh, it's frequent relatively in the book of Revelation. There's also, let me make another connection for you. 17.8 basically says the people in connection with the Antichrist, the people whose names are not written in the book of life are going to worship the beast. In chapter 13, where we meet the Antichrist, the beast, 13.8 says this, all who dwell on earth will worship the Antichrist Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the land that was slain. So twice you get this exact idea that those whose names have been written in the book of life, there's an equivalency, meaning those who will be faithful to mm -hmm. God. Everybody else is going to be taken in by the Antichrist. So the, the question, you know, I'd like to maybe break it down a little bit and say this. So that that is a fact. In other words, the, there are going to be people who are faithful and people who are not. And the scripture characterizes the people who are faithful by saying that their names have been written before the foundation of the world. So let's start there. Uh, one of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter one, just in general. But Ephesians 1, 4 echoes this idea that God, I'm going to paraphrase and and plug in a couple of names here, but God chose us in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world so that for, for the purpose that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. So this idea of God's election, God's choosing, God's knowing, I mean, we could talk about that in a minute, but this idea of our names being written before the foundation of the earth is a powerful and encouraging sign. So that is a biblical doctrine, and it just is what it is. Uh, God does indeed either foreordain or foreknow, depends on your theological persuasion, before the foundation of the world, what is going to happen and who is going to, uh, to persevere, if you will, whose name's written in the book of life. So that is, to me, just non-negotiable. That's that's scriptural idea. But this question then, I think, is very uh, authentic, and it comes in a very pastoral way. To me, this is a little bit less of a theological question, maybe a little more of a pastoral question, and very a very good one. How how do I know that uh, that my name is written in the book of life? How do I know that I will that I'm pleasing to God, that I'm following Christ, etc. And you know, my first stab at that, Cole, and then I'd love. To hear what your thoughts are is, you know, it's kind of like the question of, am I saved? Am I doing enough? Is God pleased with me? It's it's kind of in that genre. And my answer to that is always follow Jesus Christ. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And every day, uh, I'll just par paraphrase Jesus, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him every day and live with assurance. Uh, that's usually my pragmatic pastoral answer to that question. But let me stop for a second and jump in here, and because I think that's a that's a very good pastoral question. Yeah, and I I think the interesting thing where my mind went on this question is you've got to remember that John and Revelation, the Gospel of John and Revelation, written by the same person. Some people think they're kind of a mm -hmm. part one, part two combo. It's obviously not quite as streamlined as Acts and Luke. 
But with that said, you get a lot of similar themes in John and almost photo negative uh, themes between John and Revelation. And John bookends his gospel with this the answer to this question, how can I know? Mm-hmm. In chapter one, what's a very thematic verse in chapter one of John is he says, he came to his own and his people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he became he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's another way of saying these are the people whose names are written in the book of life. Anyone who believes in him, who calls upon his name, they he gives them the right to become children of God. And that's really what unfolds in the Gospel of John is how to do that, how to be a follower. And then at the very end of John, Again, he it reemphasizes that his his reason for writing is not just, you know, so that we could learn historical facts about Jesus. He says in right. chapter 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again. Same thing as what's being talked about with people whose names are written in the book of life. These things have been written, reading these accounts, doing what the people who encounter Jesus in the Gospels do, putting their trust in him, repenting, turning from their sin. And these are written so that you could do the same thing, so that you actually could know that Jesus is the Christ and find life in his name. That's John's purpose in writing both of these books, is that you would be in the book of life. Agreed. You know, one other way I like to look at hard questions like this is I always say it this way is uh, I like to walk around the question and look at it from different angles. And one of the things that jumped out to me here is to actually flip this question around. Uh, Instead of saying, how can I know that my name is in the book of life? Let's flip it around and let's look at a character in Revelation whose name is not in the book of life. Several times in this, you will see that the Antichrist is destined for destruction. Uh, He's doomed to destruction. In fact, in this lesson in 17 and 18, there's just a casual aside that uh, he's destined for destruction. So here's an interesting question, Cole, and uh, I'll just, I'm going to tell you how my mind works through this. Is the Antichrist, so we're going to take the opposite condition. Now we got a guy that is destined for destruction. His name is not in the book of life. So is he behaving badly because he knows that he is destined for destruction? Or is he destined for destruction because he is behaving badly? In other words, what causes the behavior? Is it because God has destined him for destruction? Or has God destined him for destruction because of his lack of faith in God and consequently his evil behavior? And I'm going to suggest to you that that is only an apparent dichotomy. The answer to that question is yes, Hmm. in, in my mind, is there is a, we want to divide it up and say there's a cause and effect here, and one of these two things has got to come first. And I'm not so sure I think that. I I really think that the Antichrist is doomed to destruction because he is acting out his nature, and his nature is to be opposed to God. I think we, we are uh, 
our names are written in the book of life because, of course, the grace of Jesus Christ. But we are now living out our new regenerated nature, which is no matter what, I'm going to be God's man. No matter what, I'm God's woman. I'm following you in this case. So once again, you could ask the question, are we going to be saved because we're acting good or are we acting good because we're going to be saved? And I just want to move past that and say, wrong question. We're going to act out our nature. And that nature is either regenerated nature uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, or it is an unregenerate nature like the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. So comment on that. Where, where would you take that thought? Is that of any use in this discussion? Yeah, that's a great thought. And I think it serves to provide some confidence for people who are following God now that we really can't figure out uh, other than in the hindsight of eternity, God's election, his providence, his predestination. We we really can't figure those things out. What we can figure out is what you said earlier and what, kind of what you're getting at here, which is, are you a new creation? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you asked for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you walking by the Spirit? Because that is a guarantee that you are mm -hmm. a child of God. If you're currently walking with him, turning away from your sin, walking by the Spirit, worshiping God, then you have the assurance of knowing that you are his and you continue in that until you die. So there, there's definitely the assurance of, well, which which is it? Well, it you know, it's kind of what, what Jesus says to, to Peter and John at the end of the gospel. What is it to you, you know, what's happening with this other person? Right. Or in this case, it would be, what is it to you exactly how this happened? You follow me. And that's right. what you can do. And that's where you gain your confidence. I agree. I think, and again, I appreciate the question. So don't think I'm being glib here, but I think that question highlights the, what then should I do about this? And that would be set aside any anxiety or, or worry and follow Christ. And, and I just think that's uh, the best antidote to anything is every day, again, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Christ mm -hmm. every day, one day at a time. And that's the greatest assurance that we can, that we can possibly have. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.